Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, it's the second week of 2024, and winter has finally arrived. Uh, anytime like we have weather like this, I just blame Pastor Chris. That's what I do, because he prays for days like this, you know, where his beard freezes, and he can see his breath even indoors. And so me, I'm like, I love the snow. Up in the mountains is where I like it. And so anybody with Chris? Show of hands. Anybody with? Oh, yeah, there's more crazy people in here than we'd like to admit. All right, so now I know how to pray for you. Well, it is good to see you here today, and for those of you joining us online, uh, uh, good to have you. If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today uh, we find ourselves in the middle of a short three-week series where we are pondering the question as we begin this new year, we're pondering this question together. That why is it that sometimes uh, we know the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and then just not do it? I don't know if you've ever thought about that or, or what that question looks like to you in, in your own life, but it's a question that we're pondering in this series. I mean, for all of the vast ethical and religious writings that we have access to, for all of the you know, data and information that shows us the futility of violence and even hatred in our own lives and in our personal lives, for all of the you know, ability that we have and effort that we spend in trying to get help for ourselves, for all of you know, the yearning to be men and women who love, the issue for us is oftentimes, it's not that we don't know what we ought to do. The problem for us is that most times we know what to do. We know what the right thing to do is, and then we just choose not to do it. And this isn't just like a me problem or a you problem. This is a humanity problem. This is a big problem in humanity that oftentimes we know what we should do and we just can't do it. And so the question remains, why can't we be good all the time? Now, honestly speaking, this isn't a question um, that we spend a lot of time culturally thinking about, but we do believe that it is the question as we begin this new year together that will make all the difference in our lives. And so what we've decided to do is in this three-week series is to do this series called Fallen Kings, where we're looking at the first three kings of Israel, their hearts, their passions, the things that drove them, in hopes of being able to learn a little bit about ourselves, certainly to discover things about humanity as a whole as we ponder this question together. And so if you're here with us last week, we looked at the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. And as Saul began his reign, as he was selected and anointed by God and began his reign, what we saw in Saul was that he was a pretty good leader at the beginning. That he had some early victories, he led the people well, he was obedient to what God was asking him to be as king. But as those early days and months turned into years, what we see in Saul is that his heart was really overcome by fear, that he was driven by a heart of fear. That as he looked around to the other nations, the kingdoms, the other kings, he was afraid that he would not be able to be like them, that he would not be able to, to be seen as them. And because of that fear, because of that fear, it drove him to a place where he began to deceive himself, where he began to disobey God, where he became the king, not that the king that the people needed or the king that God wanted. And when it comes to King Saul, and particularly his fear, what we see and what we learned last week is that while fear isn't the worst thing about us, fear is certainly one of the reasons why we do the worst things. That Saul is this sober reminder to all of us that ultimately the things that we fear are the things that we obey. 
Now, today, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this, and we're going to look at the second king of Israel, a guy by the name of David. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, right? We're going to be there in just a few minutes. Now, if you don't know the story of David, it's a pretty fascinating story. It begins with him as a teenager, and as a teenager, he is anointed, selected as king of Israel. Now, the only problem was, is that Israel already had a king. King Saul was still ruling during this, during this time. But after the episode that we saw last week and the story that we looked at last week, God is like, enough with this guy Saul. I'm done with him. I'm going to find me a new king who will do what I want him to do and will lead according to my ways. And so what happens is, is that God comes to the old prophet and priest Samuel and tell Samuel to go to this guy, Jesse, to go to his house. That Jesse has like, you know, <clears throat> a whole football team of boys ready to go. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house and basically tells Jesse, hey, look, God has sent me here to see your boys, to find the next king of Israel. And so Jesse lines up his boys and Samuel looks at the oldest. And I mean, this guy is, you know, he's brawn, he's strong, he's good looking. He looks like a man that can lead. And Samuel goes, this is our guy. This is the next king of Israel. And as he's deciding that in his mind, God whispers to him, nope, not this kid. And so Samuel looks at the next son of Jesse and he's like, hey, <laughs> like this same thing, brawn, strong, you know, good looking, looks like he can lead. And Samuel's like, this is our guy. And God whispers to him again, nope. Nope, this isn't the guy. And in this moment, God whispers to Samuel and reminds the old priest of these words in chapter 16, verse 7, for the Lord, for the Lord, um, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in his height of stature because I've rejected him, speaking about the two first boys, for the Lord sees not as men sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the hearts. And so Samuel keeps looking at Jesse's boys, number three, same thing, four, five, six, seven boys. And eventually Samuel looks at Jesse and goes, he ain't here. And Jesse's like, what do you mean? He's like, you have any more sons? Because the next king of Israel, he's not here. And Jesse's like, well, you know, I do have the run of the litter. He's kind of out in the fields taking care of the sheep. Hey, boys, go get him. And so the boys race out to get David. And as they bring David back, Samuel lays eyes on him. And he goes, this is the one. In verse 12, what we see is now, this is speaking of David, he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes, was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, Samuel, anoint him, because this is he. Now, imagine this for a moment, that David here is a teenager. And Samuel is the most influential figure in all of Israel. I mean, even more influential than King Saul himself. And this influential guy is standing in your house and he looks at you and he goes, hey, look, you're gonna be the king of Israel. Now, you can just imagine his seven brothers sitting there giggling going, what? Like, you gotta be kidding, right? I mean, he's the runt, he's the, the baby of the family, he's a shepherd, which in that time was like a nobody. You know, even his dad, Jesse, didn't even invite him to the draft party, right? This is what David's thought of. And Samuel looks at him as the most influential figure in Israel and goes, look, man, you're gonna be the next king. And David's like, whoa, don't we already have a king? And Samuel's like, yes, but God's done with Saul. And in the right time, you will be king. Well, through some pretty amazing circumstances, David is ushered into the king's court. He becomes Saul's friend and ultimately captain of the army of Israel. 
And it's so evident as you read the story of David that God is just with this teenager. I mean, as he's growing up, as he becomes the great warrior. I mean, part of the story that maybe you're familiar with is at one point, David defeats the enemy giant, Goliath. And people, because of his victories in battle, the people of Israel start singing songs about David. And the song goes like this, King Saul, he's pretty good, but David, he's really good, you know? And pretty soon, David marries Saul's daughter. He becomes best friend with Saul's son. Like it's so apparent, it is so apparent that God is with this guy in an unbelievable way. Well, over the course of the next decade or so, in part because of fear, King Saul begins to hate David. Because Saul realizes two things. One, one day this kid's gonna take my place on the throne, which means two, he's also gonna take the place of my son. And so King Saul grows in his hatred to the point of murderous intentions where he puts a hit out on David's life. And it would have worked if not for Jonathan, Saul's son, heir to the throne and David's best friend if he hadn't tipped David off. David makes this miraculous um, escape and survives and eventually he becomes king just like God had promised. In fact, he becomes the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's a warrior, a natural leader. He ushers Israel into their golden age. Under David, Israel's border disputes are all settled. It had become a world superpower. The entire country is wealthy. The entire country is flourishing. That at this moment in history, David, by all regards, is one of the most powerful men in all of the worlds. And for all the things that David was, he was not perfect. In fact, we have more than one story where it is apparent to us that David knew the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and then chose not to do it. That one of those episodes that happens in the life of Jesus, or in the life of David, we find in 2 Samuel chapter 24. The story picks up in the most interesting of way. It begins like this in chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. But here the story begins with an acknowledgement that God is angry towards Israel. In fact, the language here is pretty strong. It's not just that God was anger. The actual original language is that God burned with anger. Like he was fired up mad at Israel. Now, truth be told... We don't actually know when this story took place during the reign of David, nor do we really know why God is angry, but we have a pretty good guess as to why he is so fired up. See, anytime else in the Old Testament, when language this strong is used of God's anger, it's because Israel had wandered into idolatry. That idolatry is when we reject or ignore or simply rebel against God. In other words, it's when we treat God not as God, nor do we give him the honor that he ultimately deserves. And for the entirety of Israel's history, for the entirety of their history, they always had this wandering eye, even despite God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness in the selection of Abraham, um, making the... Hebrew people, God's people, to the Exodus account of Moses in Egypt, to, you know, the, the years of the judges and now into the kings, that God has always shown himself to be faithful to the people of Israel. And despite his faithfulness, the people of Israel always had this wandering eye towards the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of the Philistines. They were always dabbling in idolatry. Now, one of the things 
when it comes to reading the story that our culture struggles a bit with is the concept of God as an angry God. You hear it all the time, that people want to believe that God is a God of love, but they want to dismiss the idea that God could possibly be a God of judgment or a God of anger. As a matter of fact, you hear this in church often. People will say something like this, that when you read the Old Testament, what you see is a God of anger, but when you read the New Testament, what you see is a God of love, as if the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is two different gods. It's not. It's one, it's one God. Now, here's, here's the deal. If you're going to embrace the idea that God is a God of love, then you also must embrace the idea that God is a God of judgment and a God of anger. If God is truly loving, then he must, by necessity, also be a God of anger. That in this scene, what we have here is idolatry is paving the way to destruction. That idolatry is the pathway to destruction. And you have God who is this loving God. He, he loves his children. He loves his people. And yet he grows angry with them as they walk this road of idolatry. Because the reason that they were selected as God's people was to show all the other nations of the world, to show all the other people of the world what it looked like to walk with God, what it looked like to follow this amazing, generous, loving God. That's what their whole role was. And so anytime Israel began to wander down the path of destruction and follow idolatry, not only were they on their own path to destruction, but oftentimes they brought the world along with them. They brought other people, they drew other people into the same destruction with them. And because of God's lovingness, that there was anger there in what Israel was doing. And so we're told at the beginning of the story in verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So we're told at the beginning of the story that God is angry, and somehow David knows that God is angry. And because David knows that God is angry, David realizes that there's a pattern that anytime God gets angry, particularly because of idolatry, what he does is he goes and he goes to the neighboring countries of the world and he uses them to invade Israel to help discipline his kids, to help point them again in the right direction. And David is fully aware that this is a major possibility of what's coming. And so for reasons that we're not told, David chooses to take a census. He makes this kingly decree that we're going to go out and we're going to count everybody. And we're not just counting everybody. Specifically, we're going to count the men who can hold a sword. We're going to count the men who are part of the army. And as soon as he makes this decree, Joab, who is the commander of David's army, who quite honestly throughout David's story is not like the picture of spiritual discernment. In fact, when you read Joab, think more like Palpatine than Obi-Wan. All right, that's, that's who Joab is. And even Joab is like, hey, Dave, is this a good idea? Like, this doesn't feel like a good idea. This isn't something that feels like the Lord would want us. And David goes, oh, yeah, this is the best idea. And so verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. And so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And when they came back, Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were eight 
100,000 valiant men who drew their sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. And so David's census has taken place. He learns that there are 1.3 million men who can fight in his army. And as soon as he gets the number, he goes, oh no, what have I done? Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. To which you go, wait, wait a second, what? What just happened here? Like, why is this such a big deal? I mean, is it a sin to count people? Is it a sin to, to number the army of Israel? In fact, as we read through the Old Testament, there is no mention that, you know, counting people is illegal. There's no mention of, of taking a census is sinful per se. In fact, when we read the Old Testament and we get into the Exodus account, what we see is God giving instructions to the people of Israel on how to take a census. We have in the Old Testament a book called Numbers, which is all about numbers and counting things, particularly people. And so we read this and we see David's sin and we go, what? Like, like what's the big deal here? Why, why is this such a big deal? Well, when we read through the books of First and Second Samuel, by and large, those two books are chronological. They begin with telling the story of the priest and prophet Samuel, his kind of life story. That life story bleeds into the first king, King Saul. It tells his story. And as King Saul's story is being told, it bleeds into the story of David. And we're told of King David's story, that that's first and second Samuel. That every part of first and second Samuel is basically chronological, except for the very end, this chapter and story of, Jesus, of David's life. It's as if the historian here is writing and saying, wait, 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 we got to include this story of David's census. We got to show the people David's sin. I mean, in fact, when we turn in the scriptures in the Old Testament to First and Second Chronicles, two books that we find in the Old Testament, that really are kind of mirrors to First and Second Samuel, what we see is that this sin of David is actually elevated above the salacious affair that he has with Bathsheba and the murder that he pulls off of Uriah. That when it comes to this scene in David's life, scripturally speaking, this is a big, big deal. Like, clearly, there's something here that we don't see or don't understand. See, the sin here is not in David's method, but actually in his motive. The issue is not that he counted. The issue is why he was counting to begin with. See, the big deal is that David's sitting on his throne knowing that God is angry and he sits back and he begins to calculate, I wonder, I wonder how many men I have in my army to fight. Can I go up against the Philistines without God? I wonder if I become big enough, if I'm strong enough that I don't actually need God anymore. That somewhere along the way, it seems that David started counting his army instead of God's faithfulness. He started numbering his forces instead of God's promises. He sought his deepest strength in earthly probabilities instead of the fact that God was actually with him. See, the transgression, the transgression, David's sin was not that he counted, but in the motive of why he is counting. That the heartbeats behind this census was David's pride. It was his pride. He was not counting from a place of security in God, but rather it was in order to find security apart from God. See, all of us are aware of how truly powerful pride can be 
when it becomes a driver of our lives, especially when it causes us to overlook God's role in our lives. That ultimately pride can destroy our humanity, keep us from caring about others. It makes us compare ourselves to others, to feel insecure. It, it causes us to think that we deserve more than we actually do. And when we don't get what we want, it makes us bitter. That at the end of the day, when it comes to our pride, that our pride strips us of our humanity, blocking our ability to feel real happiness and empathy for others. And that's exactly where we find King David, our fallen king. That no longer in this moment is he concerned about the leadership of his people, what's going on in their lives. The only concern that he has is whether he has enough men to mount an army. And for a man known for his humility in this episode, we see pride driving the major decisions of his life for David, counting affirmed his identity as the most powerful military leader in the world. As if the largeness of his army said more about his skill than the grace of God. And sadly, we often find ourselves here, don't we? We oftentimes find ourselves here more than we would like to admit, where we take the talents that God has given to us, we multiply it by his faithfulness and power in our lives, and then we reckon the whole thing as our doing. We take his, his blessings, whether that's financial or prosperity or power or position or talents, whatever, whatever it might be, and we use those blessings as a substitute for God so that we can function as our own God. And the result is, is that we, is that we, that the thing that ought to deepen our thankfulness towards God actually begins to transform us. And we see that in David's life, that at this point in David's life, he is nothing more than a caricature of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, who is the picture of pride in the scriptures when he says, look at how great Babylon is, which I built by my mighty power. Why do we do? Why do we know the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and then not do it in a word? It's pride. That pride is one of the reasons that we do the worst things. Now, one of the most significant promises that we find in all of scripture is that one day a king, a king, that one day a king would be born in the city of David. And that this king born in the city of David would be from the royal line of David himself. And for centuries, the Hebrew people waited on this ancient promise of God to come to the fulfillment and to fill their empty throne. And so we get into the New Testament and we see Matthew, specifically the gospel of Matthew, that he begins his gospel with this genealogy of Jesus's life, where he's tracing the lineage of Jesus back through the line of David. It's as if Matthew is declaring to the world, Israel, your wait is over, your king has come. Four chapters later, we see the coronation of Jesus at his baptism, where Jesus goes into the water, and as he comes out, this voice is booming from the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, like a dove, begins to descend upon Jesus, which is a significant moment in Scripture, because in the entirety up until this point of faith with God, the Holy Spirit doesn't just descend on anybody or everybody who has faith, that the Holy Spirit only descends on the anointed ones of God. Priests, 
prophets, and kings. In the Old Testament, that's the only time the Holy Spirit dwelled within someone's life is because they were anointed by God. And so here we have Jesus coming up out of the water with the Holy Spirit anointing him as if God is saying to them, here is your king, here is the anointed one, here is the son of David that you have been waiting on. By the way, the significance of us, of people of faith in Jesus, having the spirit dwelling within us has huge implications for our life as we follow this to the end of scripture. But in this moment, God is declaring at Jesus' coronation, here's your king, here's the son of David, here's your Messiah that you've been waiting on. And out of that moment, Jesus goes into the wilderness to come eye to eye with the great tempter and to face the great temptation that his great granddaddy David faced. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That this temptation of Satan is so insidious. That in this temptation, the devil actually uses scripture. He says, for it is written, and then he begins to quote Psalm 91, twisting God's word as he begins to bait the hook for Jesus. He says, come on, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, if you are the anointed one, the son of David, the king of Israel, just jump. If you really are who God says you are, don't you worry. He's not going to let anything happen to you. In fact, he will save you, and in doing so, you will introduce yourself to the people in the most spectacular of way. Why remain obscure when you can do so much good by coming out into the light in the most glorious way possible? This is the temptation of pride in Jesus' life. That Satan is inviting Jesus. He's inviting Jesus to perform a miracle that would show off his supernatural power and draw attention to himself. It was the temptation to abuse his power for his own good. The echoes of David's sin reverberating through history right now. Come on, Jesus. Let's just show the world how powerful and mighty you actually are. Jesus looks at Satan and he responds to him in verse 7. Again, it is written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the tests. Jesus responds out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses is reminding the Hebrew people about the time that they fell into the same temptation in a place called Massah. It was a reminder of the Hebrew people to give their entire devotion to God because he saved them when they were enslaved, helpless, totally without grandeur when he brought them out of Egypt. And Jesus responds to the temptation of, of, of prideful showing off by quoting this verse, reminding people not to ask God to show out on our behalf. Because the whole point of being God's people, whether it is the Hebrew people that we read through the scriptures or by extension us today, that the whole point of God's being God's people is that we were never chosen because of how impressive we are that we're not the people of God because of what we've done or accomplished in our lives. In fact, we're the people of God in spite of everything that we've ever done in our lives. That we're the people of God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. That while pride is why we do some of the worst things, that the way of King Jesus is humility. That real humility comes when we see everything we have as gifts 
gifts that we don't deserve, and we're grateful for them. That humility, humility comes when we remember that who we are, our talents and our blessings are gifts from God, nothing that we have achieved on our own. In our story, David is convicted of his sin, and in humility, he comes to God. He says in verse 10, as his heart struck him, for I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity, the sin of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. See, one of the things that distinguished King Saul from King David was that David had a deep sense of brokenness over his sin. The difference between Saul and David was not that Saul sinned and David didn't. David sinned, Saul sinned. The difference was that Saul was constantly characterized by nothing more than being sorry. That Saul got caught in this cycle of sin and I'm sorry, sin, sorry, sin, and sorry, that really defined his life even before he knew God. When we begin to read through the story of David, we find out that David's nothing like that. In fact, the reason that 2 Samuel 24 is placed at the end here is to remind us, to give us this overview that David is, in fact, a man after God's own heart. Was he perfect? No. And neither are we. Neither are we. One of the constant patterns of David's life is his deep sense of conviction over sin. That when David sinned, there was confession. And confession is literally means to agree with God. That my sinful behavior, my words, my attitude, whatever it is, is offensive to God and his holiness. And what's implied in confession is that because it's offensive to God, it needs to stop. And it needs to stop right now. That's very different from a cycle of sin, sorry, sin, sorry, sin, sorry. Now listen. If we are to be serious followers of Christ in our lives, if we want God to work through us, there is a significant difference between the cycle of sin and sorry and true confession. That with true confession comes repentance. And repentance is turning and going the other way. It's putting a stake in the ground that says, in a clear sense, I'm done with this. I'll do whatever's necessary to get this dealt with, but I'm not going to continue in this pattern. That this is the overview of David's life. That he doesn't make excuses when he's confronted with his sin. There's no rationale here. There's not explaining sin away. He's not doing sin management. There's no damage control. There's no throwing anybody else under the bus. It's simply David looking with clarity saying, I have sins. What I've done before God is foolish. It's foolish. And we receive or see this repentance in David that helps us understand what it looks like to humbly be a man or woman after God's own hearts. And so here's what's in front of us. That for so many of us, we get caught in the cycle just like Saul of getting caught and saying, I'm sin, I'm in sin, I'm sorry, sin, and sorry, sin, and sorry. And today, to realize that there's a difference between getting caught in the cycle of sin and sorry and the one that we're called to as believers of confession and repentance, where we look at our sin and go, go, God, in humility, I've wronged you. 
And not only am I sorry, but I'm repenting. I'm going to do what it takes to make this stop, to go the other direction. I'm putting the stake in the grounds. See, the way of pride says, no, 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 I don't, I don't need your help, God. I can do this all on my own. Look how great my life is without you. When the reality is, is that of the humble person looks at everything that we have and goes, man, not because of me, but totally because of you. I want to invite you, if you've never experienced confession and repentance in your life, that maybe today is the day to do that. We have a text line at Crossroads. You already saw it with Angie, 720-513-1933. And if you'd like to have the conversation about what it looks like to very much experience confession and repentance in your life as you run after Jesus, I'm going to invite you to text the name of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Well, Jesus, we come in uh, this moment and... uh, Lord, we look at the pride of David's life and, uh, well, honestly, it probably hits too close to home for most of us. Lord, that so oftentimes we find ourselves right where David is. We find ourselves more than we would probably like dealing with the pride in our lives. And maybe today, Jesus, just to have a moment to pause, to confess that and repent of that before you. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us the way of humility, that we could model our lives after you, our King, and in doing so that we would be found humble that we would be found in your likeness. That we wouldn't be so caught up in our pride, but rather in our humility, we would enter into the abundant life that you invite us into with you. God, I pray these things in your name. It's in the name of Jesus, amen. We come together today as a family to take communion. And it's here at communion that we realize that the humility of Jesus extended way past his coronation and the temptations in the wilderness. But we see that humility is actually what drove Jesus's life, that the apostle Paul later on in Philippians chapter two writes that while being found in human form that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself, giving up his godness in order to become obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but death on the cross. That his humility, that in his humility, that Jesus provides the way that we might be saved. That his humility led him to death for the good of us today. And so today we remember the death of Jesus on the cross where his body was broken where in humility he sacrificed himself so that our sins might be forgiven. And when it comes to the cup, the blood of life, we realize that Jesus shed it so that we might be invited into the abundant life with him forever. And so today we drink.
We're going to continue in our time of worship by singing songs together to our King Jesus. During that time, over the next 20 minutes or so, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray alongside you. Whether you need prayer for your life, maybe looking for a blessing for your family in-house, you can make it your way to the banner back there. Online, you can click the button. In-house, I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing these songs together to Jesus.